All right, we are going to continue now in the sermon series going through Hebrews. We're going to make it one day. We've been in Hebrews for a while now. We are in chapter 10, and here is what Hebrews is doing for me. And I don't know if this is what it's doing for you, but maybe it is. I'm noticing that Hebrews is starting to feel very repetitive. Like, oh, this again. I thought we had handled this already. What am I going to say new? Um, And as I was reflecting on that, I thought about how easy it is to understand on some level what the message of Hebrews is intellectually, but to completely miss it or have it skim the surface of our hearts just as we live our lives. And so today, especially, we're going to be pushed into some of the kind of just fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so I think a temptation for us is to kind of tune out because we're familiar with it. Yeah, we've heard that before. We know, we know this stuff. But one of the things that is brilliant about the scriptures is that there's a meditative quality. And so just sitting in the same thing chewing on it for your whole life is actually going to form you into the kind of person that reflects the image of God. And so I just want to encourage you to do that, to not get um, frustrated or bored, but to actually allow the word to just kind of wash over you again. Even if it's stuff you already know or think that you know, we don't know it enough. We don't know it yet. And so that's one of the, the um, principles of Hebrews is like we have to persevere in this. And that's not just intellectually, it's actually how we live. We live a life of perseverance in this faith. And so you can turn with me. We're going to be in chapter 10. And um, this is kind of the pinnacle of the author's argument about Jesus as the great high priest and how he fulfills the law and how he brings a new covenant. And so all of those themes are starting to kind of tie together. You'll probably notice them as you listen and as you follow along. Um, And we are going to get to the point of all of this next week. So come for that. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 18 here this morning. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, 
These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is, um, this is wonderful. It's wonderful to sit and to think about your will for your people and how your will involved every aspect of your being, Father, Son, and Spirit. How you have given yourself to us so completely. And so, Lord, I ask that we would receive that here this morning that we would pause, that we would, that we would stop from all of our striving and receive you, that we would understand what it means that Jesus has sat down, that his work is done. Lord, I ask that this would transform us, that this would um, do that work of writing your law onto our hearts and into our minds. And God, we thank you that you send your spirit to be with us and to participate with us to do that work. And we look forward to that throughout our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says that the Lord exalts himself to show you mercy. The Lord exalts himself to show you mercy. That is such an interesting statement. That God being exalted, what he then does with that exaltation, that raising up, that power, that majesty, that authority, is that he shows you mercy. That's not what we would expect. Especially of a person like Jesus, who came into this world, was rejected by the world, was killed by the people of this world, he is the one who's exalted, who's lifted up, who's at the right hand of God, given all power, authority, all right to execute judgment on that world. And what he does with it is to show you mercy. It's hard to believe. It's hard to accept that. It's hard to really understand it. For me personally, I thought that that was kind of 
just too fantastic when I heard it. I think I was probably 13 or 14 when I heard that message that clearly for the first time. And my response was to become arrogant, to become mad, to become proud. It's like, well, yeah, that might be great for you Christians, but how proud do you have to be to think that that's the only way? To think that you have figured out the right thing and that all these other religions are just wrong. And so this sent me on a long but also continuous journey of seeking, of trying to make my own meaning, of trying to find my own way to righteousness, my own way to belonging, my own way to purposefulness. And I think this is something that kind of comes naturally as teenagers, like when you're in that teenage stage of life, you start to ask those bigger questions and then went to live in a way that brings you the answers to those questions, like why am I here? Who do I belong to? How do other people see me? Those are big questions that are asked. And I was asking myself those questions. And so I was off going in search of these questions and I tried to answer them in a lot of different ways. I tried to use baseball as a way of kind of like demonstrating my righteousness. If I'm really good at baseball, then I am righteous. I never would have used those words. This is all kind of looking back on it. But I can see my relentless pursuit of excellence to be the best that I could be in that silly sport was actually connected to a deeper longing, a longing to be perfect. I also tried to do it through escaping. So, okay, if I can't be perfect at something, maybe I'll just punch out. Maybe I'll just try to punch into pleasure. I'll just reject all of the work and just try and have as much fun as I can and pretend like those questions don't exist. And so I went in that direction, like full on. And something happened as the longer that I went in that direction, the longer I went into that lifestyle of hedonism, I realized it's empty, that there's no meaning. And I also realized that what I was doing as I was doing that is that I was actually just trying to get around that need for righteousness, to feel perfect, to be right, by just ignoring it. But it, was, it would always rear its head the next morning. And the emptiness of my lifestyle was weighing upon me. And so off I went to college, and I met a group of people who were Christians who lived in a very different way. I I would characterize my life as one lived in desperation that was completely denied, like a denied desperation. But I was desperate. I was looking for something. I was looking for all of those things. And that was a stark contrast with the lives of these other people, these Christians who lived in a sense of settledness. There was a calm. Like, they didn't care how other people saw them. And I didn't understand that. It's like, how can you just not care about how somebody else sees you? Like, that's how you know you belong. If, like, 
their opinion of you is what makes you belong to that group. And so I was confused by that, but I was also interested in it because that's what I wanted. I was like, that, I want that satisfaction. I want that fulfilled feeling. And what I came to learn is that that feeling, that characteristic of their life, and you can't fake this. This is just something that oozes out of you when you have it, that settledness, that sense of resting in your life. And it doesn't make you lazy, but it makes you happy. It makes you joyful in everything that you do. You work with excellence, but not to be perfect. You work with excellence to glorify something else, to point to something else. And so what I realized through their just talking to me and sharing with me is that this was all coming from their relationship with God. And so for me, in my mind, I was like, oh, so if I'm connected to God, then I will have that settled feeling. I'll have that sense of peace, of calm, of satisfaction, of fullness. But there was a problem. <laughs> I was bringing into that relationship all of the years of complete outright rebellion. And what I learned about the God that they were connected to, that they were in relationship with, was that he is perfect that he's just, that he's holy. And so there's a huge problem for me that it took me a long time and still, I would say, probably characterizes how I continue to push into my relationship with God. And that is, what do you do with your sin? What do you do with it? How do you have any right to come to me? You who lived in open rebellion. You who tried to make baseball your God. And now you want to come to me, the living God, the creator of everything. You who tried to ignore all of the things that you knew were right and just cover it up by escaping, by seeking pleasure. Now you're going to come to me. Hmm. And so the, this my, my life, as I was reading through this text, I realized how much this kind of made sense of the text for me. So that's why I'm telling you all this, because I think we have the tendency to read something like this, and it feels so far off and distant that we're like, oh, well, that's weird. Let's just keep reading. Maybe it'll make sense later on. But hidden underneath some of the cultural practices, some of the worship practices of the Jewish people, are these big questions, these questions of belonging, of righteousness, of meaning, of forgiveness. And so as we look at this text this morning, I want to show you a couple things. First is that sin separates. So sin separates. Second is that God forgives sin through Jesus. And then finally, we are sanctified by Jesus and I'll try and explain through my own kind of journey through, through this um, what, what that actually means. And so sin separating us from God is kind of the, um, the prerequisite to understanding the rest of this passage. And it's really assumed in this passage. If you look at verses 1 through 4, he's talking about the law, and we've already covered a lot of ground with that. He's talking about the temple. He's talking about, talking about the sacrificial system. 
And all of this, as he says, was basically the purpose of it was to give, to serve as a reminder of sins. In verse 3, these sacrifices, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And the reality of that sin was that God is here in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. His presence is separate from you, the people. And so this presence would have been with them, this reminder that they were separated from God because of their sin. They were not in communion with God because of their sin. And so that was a very tangible and concrete reality for the Hebrew people as they're in the wilderness. But it's a really concrete and tangible reality for all of humanity, isn't it? Right? And just look back to your pursuit, to all of our pursuit of meaning, belonging, righteousness. And look at the futility of it. I mean, you can do this by looking at the ones who are the very best. I wasn't the very best baseball player, so I didn't really get to that point. But think about somebody like Tom Brady, for instance. He's the best. He's the best he's probably ever played. People are probably angry about that, but it's true. I don't like it either. What else can he do? He did everything, and so he tried to retire, and it lasted like, he stayed retired for like four months, but really in his mind, it was probably like four seconds because he realized, what, what else am I going to do? And so he's still chasing something. He's still going after something. He still needs something. And he probably doesn't even know it, but what it is is he's trying to cover that distance between him and God, between him and his creator. And it's coming out as a pursuit of righteousness, of meaning, of belonging. And when we do that apart from God's means, it's completely futile. And it ends in disappointment. And so if sin separates us, and every human pursuit of excellence, of of goodness, of truth, of beauty, is actually a desire to be reunified with God, their creator, the one for whom we are all made, then only forgiveness can bring us back into that sense of peace, of fullness. Only forgiveness of those sins can do that. Only that debt being canceled, only that rebellion being destroyed and done away with can do that. And so in this text, we see that it is God who forgives sin through Jesus, Verse 5 is one of the most interesting verses, I think, in all of the Bible. Because it, said, it says that consequently, so because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then it's a quotation of Psalm 40. Well, that's weird. I didn't, I didn't know that Christ actually said this. Where does he say it in the gospel account? Like, there's no record of him actually saying these words 
But what the author is showing us is that he is saying it by his very existence, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. And so here is kind of the summary of this um, grand theme of Hebrews. The exalted son, the eternal son of God, who put on human flesh. When he came into the world, he did away with the requirement to offer sacrifices continually. And he says it's because this is not what God has desired. God didn't desire sacrifices. And this would have been a differentiation from other gods, from ancient gods that did desire sacrifices. That their very essence, their nature, was that they wanted you to sacrifice to them as a way of kind of magnifying themselves. But what Jesus says through his life, death, resurrection, is that that is not the ultimate desire of our God. It's not sacrifices and offerings. It's a body that you have prepared for me. You don't take pleasure in those offerings. You take pleasure in me coming to do your will. And this was all shown and foreshadowed in the law. That's what the purpose of the sacrificial system is, is to show you that it's Jesus who brings us forgiveness. We are forgiven of those sins through Jesus. If you look at what happens after we get into verses 8 and following, he's describing this relationship between the law, the obedience of Christ, and then how that is applied to us. So the law was to make room for Jesus, to foreshadow him, to show us our separation. And Jesus' obedience as a man fulfills that law. Jesus' death on the cross destroys the debt that was created by our sin. And then Jesus sitting in the heavenly throne shows us his will. It shows us his will for us. So you see this movement of Jesus. You see Jesus coming, living a perfect life, dying on the cross, and then ascending, resurrecting and ascending to the right hand of God. Right? And we know that this is actually the heavenly throne room. It's not the temple, but it's actually the reality. The heavenly throne room is where Jesus is seated, or is seating right now, sitting. There it is. And the purpose of that work, again, remember Isaiah. He's exalted. And the purpose of that is to show us mercy. The forgiveness of our sins is involved. Look at verses 11 through 13. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Futility. They're doing it over and over and over. Working, striving. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Okay, so I read this and I thought about the difference between me as I was searching and as, as I was striving for all of that sense of purpose and meaning in my own life and then these other Christians who I met and befriended, they were living as if they were, they were sat down. They were living from a posture of victory. They were living from a posture of completedness. I was living for it. I was trying to work for it, to conjure it up, just as these priests were working for it. They were trying to do something that would bring them forgiveness. What can we do to get God to forgive us? And this is why he's doing away with this. Even our efforts, even our good works are tainted by our sins. We're self-interested. We're manipulative. We have mixed motives in everything that we do. Therefore, there's nothing that we can do to get God to forgive us. But what we see in Jesus, him sitting at the right hand of God, is that he has forgiven us. It's already happened. He's already done it. It's why when Jesus is on the cross, he just kind of explodes at the end of his life and says, it is finished. You don't have to earn your relationship with God. In fact, you can't. Jesus finished that work. And so now, all authority having been given to him, he has the ability to execute his will over the earth. He is sitting exalted above the earth. His will is starting to, be, um, to come to reality over the earth. And what is his will? It's your sanctification. It's your sanctification. It's your becoming holy. It's your being made perfect. It's the removal of sin and putting on of righteousness. And it's in this process that actually we see those human longings fulfilled. But we get this twisted so easily, especially as Christians, I think. Because we think that, okay, well, forgiveness is what God did, and then sanctification, that's like what we do. That's what we do to, um, to show that we were deserving of that gift to show that we actually received it in the right way, we then conjure up our sanctification. And so we try and sanctify ourselves in our own power instead of resting in sanctification that has been made ours already. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified. The tense is past perfect. It's something that has already happened and continues to happen. You have been 
sanctified. <laughs> Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're already holy? Do you believe that you're already perfect? I sure, I sure don't. And I don't because I will lean into my own sanctification, my own efforts to cleanse myself, and then I will place my hope in those. I will start trying to live for that victory again. And that's the difference. It's living for it, trying to achieve it, instead of living from it, living from that victory. It is by Jesus that we are sanctified. Notice that. It's his will that we are sanctified from. And then in verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's by his offering, not ours. Here's the futility of our own sanctification. This happens to me all the time, and it's kind of funny, so you can laugh. It's okay. But when I first became a Christian, there was like dramatic change. You know, all of a sudden, like baseball had no meaning. I was like, why am I even playing this anymore? I don't have fun. So I stopped playing baseball. The relationship that I was in didn't give me a sense of belonging. In fact, it kind of emphasized that I didn't belong in that relationship. And then my desire to escape from something, I didn't want to escape from anything anymore. I wanted to live more fully in light of the grace that I had received by Jesus. And that happened like that. Didn't do anything. Didn't try to do it. I didn't say, oh, I really need to do X, Y, and Z. It just happened. God was sanctifying me. And now, since I've become a dad, I've realized that I'm an angry person sometimes. And I discovered this a anew about five years ago, and I think I've gotten angrier <laughs> in five years, and I am actively trying not to be angry. I'm working as hard as I can to not be angry. Do you feel that, Christians? <laughs> think, about, think about this. Your best efforts, your hardest work when you put it when you put everything in your being towards killing one tiny little sin. It's like five years. Think it's gotten worse. <laughs> Keep working. What do you think's gonna happen? Well, here is God's viewpoint of it. It's from the throne room. And with a word, you are perfect. a word, a whisper from the heavenly throne room, and you are made perfect. That's what it means that Jesus is sitting down. He already did it, friend. He already made you perfect. And so here is, here is what we do then. Because you can, you can think that and misunderstand it to think, oh, well, then it doesn't matter, and I get to do whatever I want. Well, it's like, yes, but what do you want? Because here's what the Spirit is doing. Look at verse 16. This is the Holy Spirit bearing witness to us, saying, this is the covenant that you are in 
I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on your minds. And that's attached to our forgiveness. We're living from forgiveness in having his laws written on our hearts and into our minds, not our laws. We're living according to a new law, and it's by the grace of God. It's through the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so we progressively realize our purpose, our meaning, our belonging, as the Spirit works this out in us. And it takes a lifetime. But there's no better way to live. You've got to do something in this life. Why not live from the victory God already has given you? Why not live with that sense of peace, with that sense of certainty that your efforts in your battle against sin, they're not only not in vain, but they've already been won in Jesus. Think about how much different your life will look. Think about how much different reading the Bible becomes. Think about how much different going to church becomes when you're living from victory. You're not doing it to earn good points with God. You're not doing it to try and defeat sin through some kind of self-help project. You're doing it in a participation, an enjoyment of the victory, of the freedom, of the peace that you have been given, that is yours, that is sitting at the right hand of God in power. This is hard to believe, and it hurts a little bit, to be honest with you. If you think about the imagery long enough, it'll make sense why it hurts. Because we have these hearts that are calloused, that we have been protecting from God for so long because we were afraid, because we knew that we were separated from him, because we knew that we had this debt. And so when we preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again, when we remember that Jesus has done this for us, and we open our hearts to him afresh, they're tender. And then the Spirit is inscribing his law on your heart. And what a beautiful picture that is. That is what I was looking for as a teenager. That is what every single person is looking for, whether they know it or not, to have a God who cares so much about them that he doesn't just forgive them. He forgives them and then transforms them. He forgives them and then helps them realize the very thing that they were made for. And he brings it to completion. That is the kind of confidence that the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. When we think about Jesus as our high priest, when we think about Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that this is a plan of God, Old Testament to New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, and that it's been accomplished in the person and work of his son, and that we now receive it as the Spirit brings it to us. So where, where are you still looking for victory? 
Where are you still trying to produce your own meaning? Where are you still trying to sanctify yourself instead of receiving the sanctification of Jesus? And here's an image that I want to leave for you because it's the very image that I think best encapsulates these early Jewish Christians as the author is writing to them. So many of them, you picture Tarzan swinging through the jungle, one vine to another vine. And so these early Jewish Christians, they were holding onto one vine, the old covenant, the old way of life, and they swang to a new vine. And they grabbed on it, but they didn't want to let go. And so they were kind of suspended in midair, holding on for dear life. But gravity was pulling them down. The weight of persecution was pulling them down. It was putting pressure on them to let go. And that's the same thing that happens to us. It's this, it, different language, it's the same themes. We are holding on still to self-salvation, to working for the pleasure of God, and trying to also receive God's grace at the same time. But you can't hold on to both of those. You have to let go. So just let go. Bring that other hand around and hold it fast to the gospel. Hold fast to Jesus. And that act of trust, that's faith, and we're going to get there in chapter 11. But that act of trust, what it does is it unites you to him, and we've talked about this, so that his body is now your body. His position at the right hand of God in the heavenly throne room is now your position. And you're completely at peace you're completely reconciled to God. You are completely made perfect. And that is what we hold on to. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, um, for all that you've done, Lord. Our futility in trying to save ourselves, our futility in trying to earn a victory that you have already accomplished for us. In some ways, it's heavy, Lord. It's hard. We look at all the different ways that we've just wasted time. We've wasted tears. We've wasted energy. But Lord, that's not where you want us to look. And so, God, help us to look at the exalted Christ and what he is doing with that, exalt with that exaltation, showing us mercy showing us his grace, bringing us forgiveness, and help us to live just as the author of Hebrews instructs us to live, as if what is real, we actually believe, that our sins are truly forgiven and there is nothing else to be done, that our salvation has been accomplished, period. Lord, we thank you for that promise. Help us to hold to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.